In the last episode, we discussed how the PGA Tour has become the home for professional golf for well over half a century. And admittedly, it came across like Live Golf is only just now the first challenge the tour has faced. And that's not entirely true. Ron Syrick explains how the true story of Live goes back close to 30 years, especially with their CEO, Greg Norman. In the mid-90s, I was working for the Associated Press, and Greg Norman, who is the CEO of Live Golf right now, tried to do this in 1994. His idea was to put together a limited field, 40 players, tour, 12 tournaments, guaranteed prize money for those top 40 players. And he brought on Fox, which was a new venture at that time, as his TV partner. Uh, Rupert Murdoch's a fellow Australian like Greg Norman. And they were going to do this. And the PGA Tour just cut them off at the knees. You know, they went and they pointed out what the players get from the PGA Tour and, and, and what part of what they get. PGA Tour players have the best retirement plan of any athletes in any sport. They have a deferred income plan where a lot of these guys have got several million dollars in deferred income that at age 55, they can, they can start accessing. So I, I was first aware of, of this type of adventure in 1994, and, and as I said, it flopped. However, given the topic of this episode, that wasn't the end for Greg Norman and his dream of a new professional tour for golf. And with the help of the Saudi government, he was able to find a backer who could make his dream a reality. So today, we discuss Live Golf, how it came to be, the controversies it caused, and how its first season in 2022 went. I'm Harry Kelly, and this is Not Your Grandpa's Golf. So while Norman's idea failed in the 90s, fast forward to 2018, and another attempt was made to establish a new golf tour. Ron Green Jr. explains how this group helped get the ball rolling for Live Golf. There was an idea called the Premier Golf League, a group of investors had a very similar idea or concept to what Liv is putting out there now. And in fact, some of the people who are now involved in Liv were involved with the PGL and decided to go do it themselves. There were financing problems and, or questions and all that that kept them from getting that one off the ground. But eventually it got going. The PGL's group of investors ran this company called the World Golf Group, and they needed a ton of money to get their idea of a team-based golf tour to get off the ground. So they went to the very people who would end up backing Live Golf, the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. Their idea was eerily similar to what we see with Live today. 48 players split into 12 teams of four, playing tournaments of 54 holes, rather than the common 72 of the PGA Tour, with what's called a shotgun start meaning everybody tees off on different holes on the course to all play at the same time, and no cuts, meaning it's the same players for all 54 holes, no matter how poorly they play. And of course, an absurd amount of prize money. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. In the last episode, didn't we discuss how the PGA Tour had total prize money of hundreds of millions of dollars? Why would players need to have even more money? Here's the thing about golf. Unlike other sports where you get paid no matter how well you perform, if you play poorly in golf, you don't get paid for tournaments. At least, that's how it used to be. Halfway through a tournament of four total rounds, the top half of players would advance to the last two rounds, while the bottom half would be sent home, which is the cut I just mentioned, and they wouldn't get paid anything. 
So the amount of money you won in professional golf was directly proportional to how well you played, a meritocracy, if you will. And that worked for a long time. But as the PGA Tour saw more and more money coming in, some players, especially top ones like Phil Mickelson, started having problems with the system of pay, specifically with players not being able to create their own NFTs during the crypto craze. In a now infamous interview with journalist Alan Shipnuck, Mickelson said, quote, The tour is sitting on multiple billions of dollars worth of NFTs. They are sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars worth of digital content we could be using for our social media feeds. The players need to own all of that. We played those shots. We created those moments. We should be the ones to profit. The tour doesn't need that money. They are already sitting on an $800 million stockpile, unquote. And with the formation of Live, it's clear others agreed with his viewpoint. What Phil said next would affect not only his life, but also the creation of Live Golf and the future of the sport as a whole. This morning, the six-time major champion has lost key sponsors KPMG and Amstel Light following incendiary comments he made in favor of a golf tour backed by Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund. I can't say exactly word for word what Phil said to Shipnuck in the interview, but I'll read what I can. Quote, they're scary, expletive, to get involved with. We know they killed Khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. They've been able to get by with manipulative, coercive, strong-arm tactics because we, the players, had no recourse. As nice a guy as, he refers to PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan, comes across as, unless you have leverage, he won't do what's right. And the Saudi money has finally given us that leverage. I'm not sure I even want the Saudi Golf League to succeed, but just the idea of it is allowing us to get things done with the PGA Tour. There's a lot to unpack in this quote, which we will get to in all good time. But the response was harsh and swift. Mickelson immediately lost almost all his top sponsors, was universally condemned by the PGA Tour and many top players, and he stepped away from playing as a result of the backlash. Many analysts, players, even officials at the PGA Tour assumed this meant the Saudi Golf League was most likely dead. Comments from top player Rory McIlroy tell you all you need to know. Who's left? Who's left to go? I mean, there's no one. It's dead in the water. But as Ron Green Jr. witnessed firsthand, Live Golf was already well underway, even before Mickelson's comments were made public. I heard about it officially under the terms then of a non-disclosure about 16, 18 months ago in a meeting in New York with some of the principals. They laid out this vision. It was not yet a reality, but they invited a handful of us up there and said, here's what's coming. Be ready. We're going to explain it to you. So when this gets moving, you know what we're talking about and you know what it is. Now, it's a pretty audacious plan that you're going to go get. You know, they thought they would go get all the top players in the world and they're going to be able to play the PGA Tour. They're going to be able to take all this money from Live and play their events on us. But it hasn't worked out exactly according to their blueprint. But they got it up and running last year. Live Golf announced their first tournament, set for June 2022, at the Centurion Club in England. But the mystery remained whether any big-name players would join them. And while they didn't quite accomplish their initial goal of getting everyone, they certainly made a dent on the PGA Tour. There are 42 names released today, and the highest-ranked player, well, it is a bit of a stunner. It is former world number one and 24-time PGA Tour winner Dustin Johnson. Older players like Sergio Garcia, Ian Poulter, and Martin Keimer were expected to leave, 
as their prime golf days had long since passed them and all signs pointed to them running towards the money. But the signing of Dustin Johnson shocked the golf world as he was still certainly in the prime of his career. And oh, by the way, months earlier, he had sworn his allegiance to the PGA Tour, issuing a written statement saying, quote, over the past several months, there's been a great deal of speculation about an alternative tour, much of which seems to have included me and my future in professional golf. I feel it's now time to put such speculation to rest. I am fully committed to the PGA Tour, unquote. So it's safe to say that he changed his mind. And of course, Phil Mickelson decided not to back down from his previous comments and instead joined Live Golf right before their first tournament at Centurion. Immediately in the wake of this news, the PGA Tour suspended any players who left, and they have stayed true to that policy for any who left after. And what transpired next was a firestorm of controversy, the likes of which golf had never seen. It's been an unfortunate week that was created by some unfortunate decisions. Those decisions being players uh, choosing to violate our tournament regulations. And the person who will lose out is the fan of, of professional golf who wants to see the best players play against the best players with stakes on the line. There's no history to it. All right, Dustin Johnson got $125 million. He's got more money now than he can ever spend. He's made $94 million on the PGA Tour. But the battle unfolding on the fairways and greens here goes far beyond this little patch of England. So let's be clear why this is such a big controversy. Saudi Arabia has been found violating numerous human rights. And here are some of the examples. In one of the biggest mass executions in decades, Saudi Arabia executed 81 men on Saturday. Saudi Arabia sentenced one of the kingdom's most prominent women's rights activists to nearly six years in prison this week, drawing international condemnation. The kingdom is seizing rainbow-colored toys and articles of clothing from shops. What's their reason? A crackdown on homosexuality. The man who is wanted in the death of Fallon Smart can be found these days on social media, enjoying the protection of the Saudi kingdom. They went to Saudi Arabia to earn money to send home to Pakistan, India, the Philippines. Now they're stranded, broke, hungry, and desperate. And there's one more key thing that caused a lot of backlash which is the idea of player-supporting regime that might have helped support the 9-11 terror attacks. I'm not going to go into crazy detail with this, because this could be an episode on its own. But long story short, in the wake of the attacks, an investigation done by the 9-11 Commission in 2004 concluded there was no evidence of the Saudi Arabian government having helped in any way, even though 15 of the 19 terrorists were Saudi. However, in the almost two decades since then, more and more evidence from U.S. intelligence agencies suggest otherwise, which has led to a large coalition of families of 9-11 victims to sue the Saudi Arabian government to try to get them to be held responsible and admit their fault. But the reason this connects back to Live Golf is when the announcement of the players participating was made public, those same families then wrote letters to many of the players, like Mickelson and Johnson, who essentially then dodged any meaningful response to this plea not to play. It, it, it affected all of us, and... and those that have been directly affected, I think I, I can't emphasize enough how, how much empathy I have for them. So with all of this being said, it's important to realize that whenever players like Mickelson or Johnson signed their contracts, they essentially could no longer speak freely about anything that might criticize the Saudi Arabian government. Here are some clips showing what happened when live players were pressed by the media about those said human rights violations. No one's going to argue that fact. 
but we're golfers, you know, and I, I, you know, we, you know, speaking personally, I really feel like, you know, golf's a force of good in the world. I don't, um, I don't condone human rights violations at all. I, I, I don't think it, I, I, nobody here does. If Vladimir Putin had a, a tournament, would, would you play there? A speculation, can't, not even going to comment on speculation. I've also seen the good that the game of golf has done throughout history, and I believe that Live Golf is going to do a lot of good for the game as well. Now, one of the counter-arguments against this sports-washing claim against Live Golf, which by the way means when governments use sports to clean up their image, is that professional golf has been involved with Saudi Arabia before, whether that be allowing their players to compete in the Saudi Invitational, a European tour event, or having sponsors that made a lot of money from the public investment fund. But that ignores a key point. The difference is it's one thing to do business in Saudi Arabia. These guys are actually working for the government. And MBS is, is running this whole thing and funding it. I mean, that's, this is their government golf program. By MBS, he means Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and prime minister of Saudi Arabia, who rules the country with an iron fist, including the likely order to kill Jamal Khashoggi after he started criticizing his regime. Now, some of you might be confused. Is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia really managing a professional golf tour? Well, to be clear, MBS is not actually running Live Golf. He is merely okaying the funding for the organization. The man who truly wields a lot of power over Live is Yasir al-Rumiyan, the governor of the Public Investment Fund. It is all but an absolute certainty that while Live portrays itself as independent from the Saudis, that is a lie. In Live Golf's battle against the PGA Tour in court, which we'll get into in the next episode, U.S. Magistrate Judge Susan Van Coolen wrote, and I quote, It is plain that the public investment fund is not a mere investor in LIV. It is the moving force behind the founding, funding, oversight, and operation of LIV. Rumion is reportedly one of the major voices in the management of LIV, though other people that run the fund also are involved, according to reports from outlets like the New York Times and Sports Illustrated. But the point being, all of the efforts behind running LIV get reported back to MBS. So why does the Saudi Arabian government care so deeply about professional golf? To get an answer, I want you to first hear a video. That clip is from a video by the Public Investment Fund, which is promoting a program called Saudi Vision 2030. This is a government-backed framework to reduce the country's dependence on oil, diversify its economy by getting involved in developing the infrastructure of things like healthcare, tourism, education, recreation, and transportation all by 2030 as part of a goal outlined directly by the crown prince. And one of the things that the Saudis are getting involved in as part of the program is sports. So that's why you're seeing so many sporting events in the Middle East. You're seeing tennis. We just had World Cup soccer in Qatar. Formula One auto racing is over there and a bunch of golf tournaments. So golf is being used for them, not as as so much as a revenue stream, not so much as a profit making venture, but as a PR venture to attract tourists to the area and to attract other events like this there. So we've established Live Golf as Saudi run. We've established Greg Norman, their CEO, has tried something like this before, and we've established they were able to get some big names to leave the PGA Tour. But we haven't really talked about what was the first season of Live Golf like? So join us, because the future we see is bright. The future of golf is here. 
All three of the journalists I interviewed for these episodes had varying opinions. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I think parts of it were super compelling. As a fan and as somebody whose kids are fans, the team thing was kind of compelling. Dustin Johnson. Up he goes! Victory for Dustin Johnson! They, they have teams of four that compete every week, and I think... You know, for my son to be able to say, like, oh, I'd love to see Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas and Scotty Sheffer on the same team, that that makes sense to them, right? Because they watch football, they watch basketball, and they play football and basketball. And so they understand this sort of team concept. I think if you would ask anybody in media, players, whoever, I think they would pretty much universally say they were surprised at how much inroads Liv made in 2022 and how, how many players they got how quote-unquote successful they were. I, I don't know how successful you can be if you're really not making any money, but I, I do think there was some level of success just of getting the thing off the ground, just of producing a golf broadcast is a very difficult thing to do. I, I think they have so much to prove in so many ways because I think what happened last year, it was all a curiosity. It was... What is this about? I mean, it's 54 holes. It's shotgun start. I mean, I went to two events. I went to one at Bedminster in New Jersey. I went to the finale at Doral in Miami. They've got the music. Literally through the tournament, they're playing the music, and it's a very, very different vibe. But I think the part of the calculation is still sort of it means I don't know that their competition is ever going to matter much. I think when you're watching the waste management and Scotty Scheffler's winning, there's a gravity to it. There's a meaning to the, to the competition. At live, I mean, it just sort of happened. When people are particularly abusive on social media, I always, I don't respond to them, but I investigate them. And every indication that I've gotten is the strongest supporters uh, of Live Golf on social media are bots. And so I, I don't think it's done a lot to, to grow a fan base out there. Their uh, YouTube television views were getting 40, 50, 60,000. That's nothing. I mean, that's nothing. The Super Bowl just had 113 million. But <laughs> so, uh, you know, our, our PGA Tour event would probably gets a million and a half, you know, viewers. And so to get 40, 50, 60,000 uh, wasn't too much. The big thing from them is they got Cameron Smith. And the champion golfer of the year is Cameron Smith. <laughs> and getting a major championship winner, a major championship winner, who is still on the upswing of his career was a big get for them, but that's it. They haven't, they haven't really gotten much more than that. I, I don't think they made the buzz that they thought they were going to make. And there's one key thing that will need to change within the next couple of years for live golf to truly succeed. And you're probably starting to notice a theme in this episode. They need to start making money because they're spending a lot of it. They spent a lot of money to make it work. I think the report from Sports Illustrated was close to $900 million in 2022. They're not making any revenue, which is interesting and not, you know, that different from like a startup such as Uber or, you know, like a sort of a tech startup. I just don't know what the route is for them to make money. But the biggest thing to determine, not only Live Golf's future, but also the PGA Tours, 
is an antitrust lawsuit which could define how professional golf functions for years to come. Tonight, Phil Mickelson and 10 other players who joined the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour are suing the PGA Tour. The golfers filed an antitrust suit saying they're being unfairly punished for joining the Saudi-backed LIV Golf Series. That's going to do it for this episode on Live Golf. Listen to the next part when we examine the future of professional golf as a whole. I'm Harry Kelly, and I'll see you in the next episode.